Hey friends, welcome, welcome. Pull up a chair. There's coffee and bagels on the back table, so feel free to grab a cup and get settled in. Today we're having a community meeting on the subject of community. In the social media era, how do we get past the popularity contest to build real community of people who support us, uplift us, and get us through our darkest days? Welcome to part three in our series on how 10 successful working artists built their brand. My name is Ruben Lee. Working Sunday, man. You gotta do it. You know, as an artist, you gotta invest a lot, man. Because maybe I die and then what? Things are worth more money? Who cares? It doesn't matter to me. It's like, what's the difference between 150 million and 250 million? I have definitely experienced bouts of potent insecurity. The feedback that I got was, oh, it's really great, but there's no market for Asians. I mean, I really mean it when it's small business day. Like, it means a lot more to me, I think, than someone who hasn't experienced what I did. So our first guest has actually shared her story before. In a public place, Instagram. Yep, that's right. She typed it out for her 17,000 followers, full length, over the span of two posts. And I want to start by reading just a few of the hundreds of comments people made. Fiendies says, wow, shocked face, you're so amazing. Reading this gave me goosebumps, shooting star. Little Shop of Oils says, dude, you're a badass. I pretty much love you. XO from jail. <laughs> Not sure what the backstory is there, but Little Shop of Oils, we're praying for you. And Scrumptious Delight Blythe says, I think that's awesome. You made it happen. And you were obviously the right person to end up with such treasures, heart. Anyways, there's a bunch more. I might share a few later. I just wanted to set the mood of love. Chapter five, Kate Hart. There are enough Instagram followers for all of us. Hello, hello. Hey girl, hey. <laughs> Kate Hart has a certain kind of presence. She's got jet black hair, squared at the bangs, dark mascara, bright red lipstick, punk rock leather jacket, and a rope-thick scar slicing down her chest. She met me at a bar in her hometown of Long Beach. How good are these Mai Tais? I'm like, let's cheers on mic, so it's all ching. <laughs> we were there to talk about a journey that changed her life. A journey that started with toy elephants. I mean, they're beautiful. They don't look like an elephant that any of us have ever seen. They sort of look like a blind person described an elephant to someone, and then that person made an elephant. So they have dog ears and pig feet and the shortest nose ever, and they're not right, but they're so imperfect that they come full circle. And this is by this guy named Edward Mobley. It is, yeah. An artistic genius. Edward Mobley is an artist who made his name designing squeak toys for the commercial market in the early 60s. And after Kate first discovered that elephant at a swap meet in L.A., she just kept seeing them around. Whenever I would see them, I'd be like, oh, that's kind of sad. Like, how much? $5? Okay, whatever. Get in my purse. And um, they just kind of turned into a collection. So before I knew it, I was like, 
oh shit, like, am I the squeak toy lady? Fuck. Okay. And then I got sick. And um, I was bedridden for a while. Kate was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, a super rare condition, which caused inflammation and scarring on a valve in her heart. And so she had to go in for heart surgery. It's like a reoccurring thing. So it's not something that you ever recover from. Like, I, I'll have to get a new valve again in, I think, three years. Wow. So... Is that way heavy on your head? No. Because maybe I die and then what? Things are worth more money? Who cares? And so when I had to have my valve replaced, I didn't have a bunch to do except, like, Google. So I'm really good at Google. Like, you don't want to be my ex. So she started Googling Edward Mobley. And the more she learned about this elephant designing dude, the more she came to see him as an amazing artist. She wanted to find out as much about him as she could. And so deep in Google, like pages and pages deep, she found out that he had family back in Ohio. She found an address, and then she found a phone number. Literally over a period of two years, she left voicemail after voicemail, all of them unanswered until one day, a man answered the phone. That guy was Edward Mobley's son. And at one point in the conversation... Casually, he mentioned that he had a, a storage unit filled with dead stock from the 60s. And immediately I was like, can I buy it? A few months later, she was with them in Ohio with a storage unit full of vintage squeak toys, shipping everything, the whole supply, back to California. What could possibly compel somebody to do this? Kate says she just had a hunch. Because I had a feeling like I can't be the only person on this planet that realizes how great this stuff is. And luckily I wasn't. It turns out there's a whole community of Edward Mobley fans out there. They know him as the father of pop surrealism. So when Kate posted her stash online, the response was instant. Let's read one more Instagram comment, shall we? This shit blinks says, I just came across your page and I'm so excited I did. I got my first Edward Mobley squeak a few years ago at a flea market. I was originally obsessed because the eyes blinked and I make blinking jewelry, so anything blinking I love to collect. I've fallen in love with Edward's toys, but it's so damn hard to find them in good condition. I'd love to chat more. You're a badass. The demand was there. Kate sold through most of the vintage complete pieces quickly. So she started working to finish what he had started decades ago his incomplete prototypes. And after she finished the molds, she took them to a local company to have them reproduced in resin. Then she hand-painted them. And people love them. She and her girl gang go to craft shows now, selling the work of Edward Mobley. And in many ways, that vision is her life's work. She has to have heart surgery every three years. That reality gives her this focus. There is enough space for all of us. There's enough money, there's enough Instagram followers that 
we could all come together and support each other and be fond of each other's work. And if I can be even the most minute piece of that, that's really like my end goal. You can find Kate's work on Instagram or on the web at Bitter Squeaks. Yep, you heard right. Bitter Squeaks. Remember Kim Weller from the first show? Well, I showed her Kate's Instagram. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I want one of the kitties. Yeah. They're cute, right? They're super cute. So our next guest battles an illness that is much more common, something that essentially all of us face at some point in time, depression. And his relationship with social media is complex. On the one hand, it drives his depression. And on the other hand, it saved his life. Chapter six, Ryan Brunty, draw your monsters. Hello, my name is Ryan Brunty. I'm the founder of Depressed Monsters, which is a mental health advocacy group. Uh, it's also a clothing line. Uh, we do murals. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun now that he's traveling the country, engaging with fans, but his work comes from a pretty dark place. Here's an excerpt of him telling his story with The Moth, a public radio show in New York. I stopped going to work. I stopped leaving my house. I stopped talking to anybody. And it got to the point where nobody knew I even existed anymore. I stopped getting calls. I stopped getting texts because I was the lonely guy. Nobody wants to be friends with the lonely guy. So two weeks go by and I don't leave my house. I don't do anything but lay on my couch in my bed. The only thing that I do is I start, I draw one self-portrait a day. And these can vary from deranged monsters to happy monsters to furry monsters to humans to anything. Because to me, the only thing that helped me was drawing a monster and putting it on social media because that was the only way that I was able to reach out into the the real world. So a couple months go by, I keep doing self-portraits. And one day, as the healing process goes, I look down and there's this guy on the paper. On the paper in front of him, was a little egg-shaped monster with brown fur and droopy limbs. He had cute little horns and cute little teeth. He's cute, but he's also sad. He has these big starry eyes and a kind of neutral expression, sort of like that disappointed emoji with the slightly downturned mouth. Ryan named him Yerman the Yeti. And in the years since he introduced him to the world, He's gotten a huge variety of fans. Celebrities like Sarah Jessica Parker have taken their photo with him. And he's constantly on the move, getting more opportunities for Yerman. The live speaking events and the mural art help drive attention back to the products. He sells hats, stickers, posters, and even 3D toys and fidget spinners. But mostly, he sells a lot of shirts. My girlfriend and I will have little uh, packing parties in the house where we'll put on Netflix and watch whole seasons of shows and package everything up and sew everything. And 
It's a lot of work, but it's really nice to be able to touch everything. Some therapists have used Yermin to talk to kids about depression. And some fans have made Yermin a part of their life forever. Someone got Yermin tattooed on them. Mm-hmm. How fucking cool is that? Yeah, that happened a couple years ago. It feels cool, man. To see something that you... Like, something that, that helped me from killing myself meant something to someone else to put on their leg forever. Ryan gets meaningful messages all the time from people who appreciate what he's doing. He's building a community by being transparent about his sickness. You know, ever since the moment I sent you the first email, like you have seemed like an extremely positive person, Yeah. but you've been super open about depression that you go through. Yeah, just speak on that a little sure. bit. Yeah. I use humor as a mask to my depression. And I think that most, I'm not saying that I'm a funny person, but most funny people usually have things that they're trying to hide. I mean, Robin Williams is the perfect example. And I think Chester Bennington was another really good example too. I mean, Chester Bennington, he was a rock star, lead singer for the bands Linkin Park and Stone Temple Pilots. There's videos of him that were released two days before he committed suicide where he's laughing in a car with his bandmates on one of the TV shows and stuff. And mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to pinpoint someone that's going through mental health issues because there sometimes are no warning signs and there are no cries for help and there are no explicit things to look out for. When I'm trying to speak about my depression, is that's what I want to show, is that I can be one person on the stage and, you know, be funny or this or that, but, you know, in my head I'm hating myself or I'm second-guessing everything. And so that's kind of what the purpose of Depressed Monsters is, is that there is no face to this. There is no face to depression. I agree with Ryan that it's important to talk about because we all experience it to some degree and it affects our work. I know that for myself personally, sometimes I'm jogging at the top of a mountain, smile on my face, view of the future. Other times I feel like I'm in a crowded subway station trying to get up a broken escalator while people in suits keep pushing me out of the way. I feel like quitting, going home, picking a new path. Are there times when you can't run your business because of depression? Dude, that's a really, really good question. I've never, I've never been asked that before, and I think that's a really important question to ask, too. I'm running an art business, and any artist will tell you it's hard to be an artist, especially now. And I think that Instagram and all these social media sites, it makes anybody feel less than instead of building people up because you're constantly looking at people's best representation of themselves. And so to answer your question, yeah, it is sometimes hard to, to run my business. You, you're full of self-doubt and you're full of uh, self-loathing and some days you wake up and you go, I'm a piece of shit. Why should I even get out of bed? So yeah, it's tough, man. And I, I really think that the, the reason for that, a big reason is social media. It's a great tool, it's great for business, it's great for promoting, but it's so damaging. And I can never imagine being a kid growing up with that being like your every day and thinking that's normal. That's a strange contradiction, isn't it? Posting his monsters to social media is what literally saved his life. 
Building that community is his bread and butter, but it's also feeding his beast. I mean, the internet has created this community that is full of competition. It's full of putting people down, and we're all addicted to our phones. I mean, we sit there when we're bored or in a doctor's office or whatever, and we just scroll for no reason because we have these caveman tendencies to just use our thumb to scroll up and down. And, like, Bill Gates knew it, and so did Steve Jobs. They didn't let their kids use technology because they knew how damaging it was because it creates all this anxiety and depression and stuff like that. This is absolutely true, by the way. It's a documented fact that Steve Jobs wouldn't let his children near an iPad and Tim Cook, the current CEO of Apple, has banned his nephew from joining social networks. And so I think that like the more excess we have and we're shown through social media, the less we are to follow and pursue our own dreams. And so like when I get home, I will not, I'll try not to use my phone. If I feel like I'm on Facebook too much, I'll delete it from my phone. And it's hard. Like, it feels like you're taking a needle out of your arm because you essentially are. You're taking Zuckerberg out of your, your heroin needle arm. Like, it's, it's really hard to do. And it's all on purpose. Like, it's all a game. I mean, I think I get it. It's like social media is an amplification of community. When you're a member of the community and people recognize and appreciate you, it's wonderful, but when you're feeling like the lonely guy at the edge of the party who doesn't know anybody, watching everyone else have the time of their life, it's horrible. Even looking at Ryan's Instagram account, I can see the super polished artwork. His clothing was featured in a national magazine, so he's got a post of that. You see the acceptance, but you don't see the rejection. I had a couple big projects fall through. I really really destroyed me. ABC reached out. I was supposed to be on an ABC show for this uh, a toy show they have. Went through all the process, and then at the very last minute, they said no. It didn't give me a reason, and like I was prepared to go film this thing. I was stoked, you know? And then when that fell through, I was like, I, I felt deep into it, like for a good three, four months. Yeah. That's fucking tough, man. It's tough. Oh, God. <laughs> and then, um, a little later in the year, I started, okay, I need to get out of this. I need to start doing more designs, and that's what really helped me. It was the back to the focus of, I need to do this because this helps other people, and in turn, it's going to help me. And I think that's what helps me get through my dark days. We all need something to believe in. Something or someone that's bigger than ourselves and our fragile ego that enables us to connect with other humans on a human level. And for Ryan, it's not the clothing line or the toys, although those are great ways to make money, like that's his business. It's that soapbox, that message, these live speaking opportunities. And they don't really teach you that in school. They don't teach you that in elementary school because how do you teach that to kids? How do you tell kids that there's a reason you're sad and it's your brain's fault? There's no way to approach that. That's not something easy to talk about. And I just wish that there wasn't that stigma around it because you really have to speak out because it's not a mental health issue. It's a human health issue. And if we're really going to beat this and if we're really going to start connecting over this, we have to talk about it. And you can't be afraid to talk about it. So what's next for Ryan? He's got big dreams to create more connection opportunities with the youth of tomorrow. Three to five years, I would love to have a cartoon on Cartoon Network. 
have Germans show up with the Cartoon Network logo on the on the bottom like that. To me, is everything I've ever wanted. And how do you do that? How do you address mental health issues in a way that's entertaining yeah. and slapstick funny? That's the question, isn't it? I mean, mental health is a serious, serious topic, and I almost feel like if you're not telling it in an interesting, maybe not humorous, but like lighthearted way, you can't open up some kind of conversation around it. And so I'm not saying like to laugh at suicide or laugh at depression or anxiety, but if you can show symptoms of it and then show someone getting through it in like different interesting ways, maybe that's the answer to it. But I guess you'll have to tune in in five years when Yearman's on Cartoon Network. Yeah, bang, <laughs> I will. Brian Brunty. As the only artist from Vegas, he's the ringer in our series. Catch up with him and Yerman the Yeti on depressedmonsters.com. So many of us on the independent hustle are working to build a following. I feel like Ryan and Kate's stories flip that whole idea of a following upside down. And I've noticed the same thing is true for so many of the artists in this series. They're not just creating art for themselves, they're building a community. On the next show, we go further into how putting your art into the world can help give you the courage to stick with your ideas when they're rejected by the mainstream. There was a buzz that was going around because the VHS tape was going around and people were talking about it. And so MTV asked to see it and uh, the the feedback that I got was, oh, it's really great, but there's no market for Asians. Friends and family, much love. We'll see you next time here on Working Sunday. Music and mixing by William Mandel with major editing support by David Fox, Emily Shaw, and Eric Silver. Amanda McLaughlin and Multitude Productions help us get our marketing hustle on. Working Sunday is produced by me, Ruben Lee. Recorded in Los Angeles and right here in Oakland, California. And so recently we just did um, an entire side of a building in downtown Las Vegas. That's so dope. I've had my eye on that building for like 10 years now. Every time I drive by it, I'm like, dude, I would love to paint that building. And finally the opportunity arose and it was like a dream come true. It was cool, man. Hey fam. So speaking of community, if there's someone in your life who you think would like this show, share it with them. Who doesn't love a new show to listen to? And we appreciate it too. It's the best way for an indie show like this to keep growing. Thanks.